we want to be as close as we can to investing in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. I mean, we want to change the typical face that comes into your mind when you hear investor or when you hear a startup entrepreneur. So it's going to take some time to get that done. So we just want to make sure that we're supporting founders and also we're building in public. We have a mantra that you can't be what you can't see. So we want to be in public. We want to have a big, hair audacious goal. We want to champion other people who have the same missions and initiatives as us. And we want to make sure that there are more people who can build funds like ours. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we're exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and coming to you live today from Ohio City. So on the show, we talk a fair amount about investing and about funding. And today we're going to talk about those again, but we're going to look at this space through an important and different lens. Of the thousands of VC partners out there, only 18% are female. And of the VC-backed founders out there, only 9% are female. And when you cut these statistics by race, the picture gets even more grim. Only 1% of venture-backed founders are black. And these statistics really just scratch the surface of the dearth of diversity in the worlds of funding and founding companies. Today's guest is Brandon Bryant, and he's working to solve this problem. Brandon is a managing partner and co-founder of Harlem Capital Partners, a minority-owned early-stage investment firm on a mission to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. Brandon is also a content creator with hundreds of thousands of followers who tells the stories about business and culture through an entrepreneurial lens of his brand Wall Street paper. And also worth noting, Brandon recently moved back home to Cleveland from New York City. This was truly an enlightening conversation, and I learned a great deal from Brandon through it, and I really hope that you all enjoyed this conversation as well. I'll start with a, a warm welcome to the show and a, and a welcome back to Cleveland. I'm very excited to have you on, Brandon. Thanks, man. Uh, appreciate you inviting me on and looking forward to answering any questions you may have. Yeah, I think a, a great place to start would, would be your, your actual journey you know, and personal path from and ultimately back to Cleveland um, and understanding a little bit about, about your, your background there. Yeah, so originally from Cleveland, grew up in Bedford and Twinsburg area. Went to Bowling Green originally and then transferred to Ohio State. Study economics there. Eventually kind of moved to New York and worked in investment banking for a few years. And after that, went into photography and video. Scaled a business as a solo entrepreneur. And that company is called Wall Street Paper. Worked with great brands like Uber and Microsoft, Gillette and Bank of America, actually, who became one of my biggest clients. And while I was doing that, uh, me and a few colleagues from investment banking started to angel invest. And we wanted to focus on people who look like us since we had uh, hung up a shingle in Harlem and looked at small business, looked at real estate, and then found these amazing founders in the tech startup space and saw that this was so interesting after doing six angel investments that we wanted to do it full time. Uh, so now I just spend my time mostly focusing on Harlem Capital, investing in founders of color and women. And on the side, I still do some photography and video. Awesome. Yeah, I think we'll we'll come back to the the photography and video and Wall Street mm -hmm. paper in a little bit. But I'd love to start with just, you know, a, a real deep dive on on Harlem Capital. Thank you for sharing a little bit about the, you know, the founding story there um, and, and kind of the the vision and goal that that you have for for the company. 
Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of you know the the current state of, of Harlem Capital and what and what your what your guys' focus is right right now? Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll go and tell you a little bit more about that that founding story. So when I was a sophomore in college at Ohio State and studying economics, I wanted to get into business, so I joined this national diversity program called MLT Management Leadership for Tomorrow, and it's a diversity program for Black and Latinx students to meet folks who look like them at other universities. And I actually met my business partners from Harlem Capital in that program. So Henri is from Detroit and went to Northwestern. Jared is from New Jersey and went to Wharton. And we became great friends. Then eventually we ended up interning together as sophomores and juniors in finance in New York. And then we went full time and lived in New York, lived in Harlem. Henri and I were roommates for four years. And we worked at Bank of America for two of those years. And Jerry lived across the street the entire time. And so it was safe to say we knew each other quite well, personally and professionally. And Harlem Capital really started through a group chat. We had a group text thread where we shared where to go hang out, new music, news. And then eventually over the years, we started sharing opportunities to start to invest. What we saw was it typically was a $25,000 check minimum. So we thought since we don't have $25,000 like ourselves personally, we can pull that capital together and start to make these investments. And so that's how we really started angel investing. And we did, like I mentioned, we did small business and real estate. But then we saw this huge opportunity in early stage startups where we thought it was the next industrial revolution. And we saw that there weren't investors who were prioritizing people of color and women, despite them being 70 plus percent of the population, uh, they were getting about 4% total of all the venture capital funding each year, which is $100 billion with a B. So you have $100 billion times 4%, <laughs> but that only goes to, uh, and, that, and that goes to almost 70% of the population. So it, it's just that, that delta between 4% and 70 plus percent. We thought that was an opportunity for us to do good and to do well financially at the same time. And then that led to us, um, after doing six investments as angel investors, to fundraising for our first fund. Uh, target for that was 25 million. We thought that that was the most viable size for a fund for us. We ended up raising 40 million. So we were oversubscribed and hit our cap. And now we do check size between 500,000 to a million into seed rounds. Typically folks who are raising anywhere between one to $3 million in capital, we're looking for seven to 10% ownership in that check. Uh, we've done 21 investments so far out of this fund. Plan is to do 30. So we're about two thirds of the way through. And of those 21 investments, plus the six angel investments that we did, we're in 12 different cities across the US. New York, LA, Chicago, and Boston tend to be hubs for us. But we do have four investments out of the Midwest. We have one in Columbus, two in Chicago, one in Indianapolis, and we're hoping to get one in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll make that happen. When when you say you know raise a fund, it it's this kind of high level concept that I I feel from the outside kind of abs abstracts away almost everything <laughs> that goes into fundraising from LPs and recruiting and setting up the back office and dealing with governance and ultimately a very entrepreneurial endeavor in and of itself. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective. You know what what does that actually entail? Man, raising a fund is extremely hard. Like if you ever were a, a founder and were looking to start a business and fundraise from investors, 
It could take anywhere between three to six months, six months if it's long. For our first fund, it took us 18 months to fundraise. So we were investing in uh, a cohort of founders, right? People of color and women, specifically men who are Black or Latinx or women of any race. And people five years ago thought this was somewhat laughable. But we had we were lucky to find an amazing anchor investor who believed in diversity investing and they believed that it was going to be similar to what impact investing was 15 years ago, 15 years ago, people would laugh at someone raising funds to do impact investing and thinking that you can have returns. But now every large firm has $1 billion impact investing firms. So we're excited to kind of be behind folks who, who really believe in us. And then in terms of the, the typical process is, man, you're spending anywhere between 10 to 15 hours with folks who are institutions. So those are endowments. Those are, you You can call them foundations. You can also think about high net worth individuals, family office, et cetera. Those folks write check size between one, anywhere to 10 plus million dollars. But to even get traction to get in front of those folks, you got to do a friends and family round. It's hard to do friends and family round when you're uh <laughs> when you're a person of color or woman because not many of your friends are, are are that wealthy so for us we reached out to all of our former managing directors mds or anyone that we ever met who was wealthy like we were asking friends parents <laughs> to jump on calls to yeah, yeah. to uh connect with us and long story short we had a chance in the first 6 months we had cobbled together about anywhere between 2 to 3 million dollars and we probably had like 20 or 30 people who who helped us out there. And then from that two to three million dollars, the next six months, we were able to get our first kind of seven figure checks and we got our anchor investor. And usually your anchor investor is going to be that backstop, that person who is always championing you, introducing you to new people. And whenever someone has um, trouble getting up to speed and believing in uh, why you why you are the right person to uh, manage this capital, they'll come in and do reference calls for you. So TPG was that for us, a, a private equity shop out in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were that for us. And then after that, we had many institutional investors introduce us to people in their network. And warm intros really go a long way. So that six months, we probably raised another, I don't know, maybe 15 million. So we were under 20 million with the last six months to go for 18 total months. And in that last six months, we raised the rest of the $40 million fund. It was just crazy to get that thing rolling and yeah you have to have back office things going on so we use folks like carta you have to have a tax team you have to have legal team to legally start a fund it costs a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars plus to legally even have the paperwork to start a fund so there are a lot of potential barriers and challenges especially for people of color and women to start funds but I think the best way to get into it is to start either advising or even angel investing. And one thing about angel investing, you don't have to have large check sizes. You can angel invest with your time, right? Or you can angel invest with a $1,000 check or a $5,000 check, which a lot of people are doing right now. So I'll stop there. That's kind of a little bit about our journey. We're hoping that for future vehicles that we fundraise, it'll be much less than 18 months. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. You introduced a lot of threads there that I, I, w- I would like to pull on a little bit. One of them is that, you know, th- this idea, both from starting a fund itself, but also starting a company is it, kind of this idea that you need capital in order to take mm. risk. And, 
And it's this real chicken and egg problem of how do you make sure that there's enough capital to get started? And it it plays into this more macro idea that that you guys are, are working on to address what is really a, a systemic inequity and in access to to capital to get started for people of color, for for women. I've definitely thought about this from my own perspective, how much just you know, luck and privilege came into it that I'm in a position where I could even take risk in the first place to try and start a company. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear from kind of a macro level how you think about that more systemically, that that challenge of you need capital to take risk. And ultimately, there's been a huge lack of, of access to capital for, for so many of these entrepreneurs. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I might even take the vantage point of being a venture capitalist, right? 80 plus percent of VCs are white and about 70 plus percent of founders are white. Uh, and then let's let's talk about uh, diverse folks. Four percent of VCs are Latinx. Three <laughs> percent of founders are Latinx. And let's just talk about African-American. Three percent of VCs are black and two percent of founders are black. So we believe from like a venture perspective and an investor perspective that your race correlates directly to the amount of of founders, but even think about it from a gender perspective, 86% of VCs are male, 87% of founders are male <laughs> and, and vice versa for, for women. So you have 14% and 13%. So we think it goes across the board that we just need more diverse check writers to create more diverse founders. So going to your chicken or the egg problem, we said, how does one get into venture capital without having investing experience? <laughs> right? Chicken right, or egg. Right. Like, to get in venture capital, you need investing experience or tech experience. But how do you get tech experience or investing experience with never getting uh, that first wing at the bat? So what we did was create an internship program. So we created a part-time internship where you can work with us for 10 weeks and you get a chance to work on deals, sit on management calls, do deal memos, go to IC committees, work on research and be a part of like an ongoing cohort of people uh, or a network of, of people who are looking to get into venture capital. We've done that 10 quarters in a row. We've taken five to six people each quarter for a total of now 60 folks. We've had 5,000 people apply for these internship positions. So we take 5,000, we've only taken 60. Sorry, we, you know, this small team, there's only five people on our team. We've only managed so many. Right, but the right. point here is of those 58 to 60 people that we've taken on, 15 have gone on now to go into venture capital and private equity without having any prior experience. And then we end up hiring three of those folks. So what we think we have to change the model. I would say typically part-time internships have never worked in any space, especially in the finance space. Like you can't do investment banking part-time. It doesn't make sense for private equity. But for venture capital, when it's more deal sourcing, more just getting up to speed really quickly and making a decision within six or seven days, you can spend some really quick time to get up to speed and make make that opportunity. So from my vantage point, we need to figure out different structures and ways to get people into that investor seat. And then what do people who have money usually invest in? Their friends, their family, their colleagues, the people they went to school with. The people that they hang out with, with with in different like social clubs and potentially professional clubs. And so if we can get more people into that investor seat, I think that can start to help solve the problem of access to capital for um, people of color and women at the founder level. 
Yeah, birds of the feather. Uh, Flock yeah. together, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That is really exciting, though. It feels like kind of the beginning of a flywheel, potentially. You know, if, if how do you go about producing more diverse investors very deliberately, what you guys are doing at Harlem Capital as kind of a lever to, to break that cycle and bring diversity into the investor community and kind of build up a, a network of, of people, given that, <laughs> right, people are investing in, in who they who they're kind of most similar to. Yeah. And, and we, we kind of, um, we have a big thing about building in public from a Harlem capital standpoint where each analyst class, or I, I guess each intern class, we share the statistics of like how many people have applied what's the, the diversity metrics what's the gender metrics. And then at the end of this blog post, we say, we continue to find an amazing amount of diverse talent who can do great things in this space, you know, we really suggest and highly um, submit to folks to continue to look and do their 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 deep diving into finding these great talented folks. Yeah, one of the things that I have thought a little bit more about from the the company building side, and less from the investing side, but the, it's really the same issue that applies from the company building side when when you're thinking about recruiting and. I'd love to get your take on, you know, what the right approaches to diversity, inclusion, and retention are uh, on the team building side rather than on the the founding and uh, funding side. Yeah. So what we do, luckily, we don't have that much of a problem with our founders because, as we mentioned before, birds of a feather flock together. So luckily, (laughs) a lot of our founders are hiring uh, super diverse folks. But what I would say to... uh, Founders or startups out there now who are five people or less. I mean, number one thing you have to do, especially after you're going after roughly five folks, is hire diverse people. You have to hire diverse leaders because diverse leaders will show representation. They will create access and hopefully they will educate the new diverse people who are going to be coming into that pipeline. I think that was actually one of the main reasons why we started Harlem Capital ourselves. So Henri and Jared, when they were in business school, I mean, we were doing this part time. We came back to ourselves and said, hey, why are we recruiting at firms that don't have any people who are who look like us, who are partners, who are in leadership roles, who are this or that or another? Why don't we just do this for ourselves? Why don't we take this seriously and, and put our own shingle up and, and bet on ourselves? We're young. We're under 30. Why don't we take a bet on ourselves and take this risk uh, fairly early? And let me be very clear. We had debt on our books across. the, <laughs> So we were definitely yeah, taking yeah. a risk and we definitely didn't have all the financial stability, but we had, we were naive enough to believe in ourselves. So I think with that being said, like those are going to be great people who could potentially work at your company, but they don't want to work there because there's no clear path for them to have any type of leadership role, to participate in an upside, to be someone who can be a change maker to be someone who can be seen as as a point person at your company. So for me, like hiring diverse folks as early as possible is the best thing that you can do. And then putting in uh, strategic processes and measures to have diverse people uh, come and teach and educate and share about best practices in the industry could be really helpful for you as well. One of the things you mentioned that I wanted to, to come back to was how, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so that the idea of these diversity initiatives were maybe kind of brushed off, um, and the you know more more broadly the the social impact approach to company building and investing uh, may have been more brushed off. 
in your mind, you know, why is it that people are are taking it more seriously now? It's it's kind of unfortunate you have to even ask that question given how it seems very clear that diversity can generate better business results mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day. But but what what do you think is like the the catalyst for the the change in perception in, in people and and the proliferation of a lot of these initiatives? Yeah, this is this is a good point here. I mean, we had looked at research from the Kaufman Fellows that showed that ethnically diverse founders tend to have like 3.2x more um, exits compared to 2.5x of just like all white founding teams. And we're like, all right, cool. Like, what's so? It's been proven that diverse teams tend to uh, perform better. Why hasn't this happened yet? And for us, we think people of color and women are just now getting educated and getting into this market. And it takes about seven to 10 years to see real clear breakout wins and examples. So you have folks like Calendly. How long has Calendly been around? Roughly since 2013. And they're just now hitting that real kind of technically not a liquidity event, but they're a unicorn status now. Same thing with Compass. So, and then also same thing with folks like Squire, which is, um, which is a software for barbershops. They just, they raised over $100 million for software for barbershops in the last seven years. So I think we're starting to see a lot of these companies hit their, hit their stride. And now that folks are hitting their stride on top of uh, some of the racial equity initiatives, you're going to see in the next, in the 2020s, there are going to be, in my opinion, a lot of examples of people of color and women really winning. And then even shout out to Whitney Hurd from Bumble, who is, you know, the youngest person, or sorry, youngest woman to ever IPO on a NASDAQ. Like her being able to be, to represent folks like that is huge because now people are going to grow up and think that they can do that, uh, which is great. So th- we need a lot of representation. We need time. And all those things are working in our favor right now. Yeah, we definitely need more of that. Given the the rise of so many of these uh, diversity initiatives, what in in your you know research and you know dive into the space, what have emerged as kind of the consistent patterns across what a successful diversity initiative looks like? Hmm. I think this is a good one. I mean, a strong diversity initiative has it has capital behind it, it has structure behind it, and it has autonomy. Those are the three things you need, whether that's at JP Morgan or whether that's at your startup. If folks have the autonomy and ownership and the capital behind them and the right structure, and then lastly, support of allies, I think this is something that might be a little bit underrated. For us, we have support of allies, right? Like our first anchor investor really helped introduce us to the next four to five institutions that got our fund off the ground. And that turned into a flywheel where now all, we have six institutions that can introduce us to folks as we fundraise and build things in the future. And so you have to really be cognizant of that when you're building that out internally that, and actually seven back, just for example, think about chief diversity officers. I would say a lot of them right now may not have as much power, as much budgets, and as much structure as they would like, and as much allyship from uh, the powers of P to folks who are running the company, if you will, as they would like to be. So right now their hands are a little bit tied and, and not many initiatives are getting done. So if you can have someone who is who is really in power, who has that autonomy, who can put capital behind things and run it as if it's a small operation or a small, or almost like an entrepreneur, then you can really have opportunities for folks to do things that are a little bit outside of the scope, but they're going to be impactful in the long run. 
Yeah, th- thinking towards the the future, I kind of want to tie it back to to Cleveland and you know, kind of your your outlook a little bit. You know, ten ten years from now, what is the <laughs> the kind of impact that you know, both from a, a kind of broader uh, Harlem Capital perspective that that you that you hope to have uh, with the firm, and then I'd also love to to get your take on you know what you are most excited about um, with your presence here in Cleveland and and expanding the the scope to less of a geographic focus and, and more of the opportunity here in, in Cleveland and in the Midwest more generally. Yeah, this is a this is an awesome question. Take it from a Harlem Capital perspective. I think it's simple. We want to be as close as we can to investing in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. I mean, we want to change the typical face that comes into your mind when you hear investor or when you hear a startup entrepreneur. So it's going to take some time to get that done. So we just want to make sure that we're supporting founders and also we're building in public. We have a mantra that you can't be what you can't see. So we want to be in public. We want to have a big, hair audacious goal. We want to champion other people who have the same missions and initiatives as us. And we want to make sure that there are more people who can build funds like ours. We can't invest in every diverse person <laughs> in the country, right? But we want to at least set the platform and the foundation for every diverse person in the country to get funding, to get the funding that they deserve and get the treatment and the support that they deserve. And from a Cleveland standpoint, um, and then I'll go to the Midwest and broader, I think Cleveland is an uncut gem. I think there's a lot of opportunity here. There's uh, decent capital sources, good colleges. And then I also think that there's entrepreneurs or folks who are entrepreneurial minded that might just need the education, that might just need someone who looks like them or someone who's in their network to be successful, to give them that, that itch and that confidence to take a risk. And I hope that I can be helpful to, to be an example, to be a, a positive catalyst for folks to do that. And then you have in the Midwest in general, I think I like to call it uh, one of my favorite emerging markets. There's so many of the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000 here who can be great customers for companies that are building here and can be great partners and can be great people who educate. And I think there's there's there just needs to be a lot more connectivity, a lot more overlap, a lot more people sharing learnings and kind of getting together and putting their not only their money where their mouths are, but their relationships, allyship, structures, and even power, the autonomy that they may have or the influence that they have towards democratizing access for people to create new technology and new companies to scale here. I think there are clear examples of that with the folks in Columbus with Root Insurance, Olive, Cover My Meds, et cetera. And there's no reason why that can't happen in Cleveland. There's no reason why that can't happen in Indianapolis and in Detroit and all these other places in the Midwest. So I, I'm truly, truly big time excited about what the future is going. And with COVID, I think there's so many super talented people who left the Midwest to go to the coast or to go to some tier one city and are now back home and are enjoying the affordable living and enjoying the lifestyle, being closer to home, closer to old friends. But they're also seeing the opportunity to take what they learned in those coastal cities and to leverage those relationships as well to really build something that the Midwest hasn't seen and solve these these different problems that the Midwest companies or consumers have and, and do it in a really impactful way. Mm. 
I, I know it's been uh, not too long since since you've been you've been back, but um, mm-hmm. you know what what has kind of the reception been to the, the work that you're doing here locally? How, how is it resonating with people? Man, I think folks are excited or excited by me being here. I'm excited. Uh, there's, there's, <laughs> folks there's, are exciting too. <laughs> it's all very exciting. <laughs> uh, it, I think it's exciting. Uh, I'm glad that uh, Harlem Capital and, and the brand that we've been able, to, uh, fortunate enough to to work on, is is shedding some positive light of what can happen here. But I want to build, and I want to partner with the folks here to build a, a recruitment team to bring all these boomerangs back home. And on top of that, I want to build a recruitment team to just attract great talent. And then lastly, after you have great talent, we think that um, all the investors and, and all those folks will definitely follow after suit. So um, if you hear this and you're one of those folks who want to be a part of that recruitment team to bring all these boomerangs home and then eventually get all these these transplants here to really invest in this community and make it even more thriving than it is right now, I would love to, to lock arms together on that. Yeah, I think... I think there's a, a handful that that we can <laughs> we can make it happen for. Speaking of brand, mm-hmm. both from the Harlem Capital perspective, because I think you've been able to to leverage you know your pretty extraordinary own personal you know experience and, and journey with with Wall Street Paper in in the building of Harlem Capital as a brand as well. But yeah, I would love to to get your your perspective, uh, maybe transitioning a little bit to to Wall Street mm-hmm. Paper and and the work that uh, you've been able to to do there. How you think about you know, the importance of, of brand and, and from that perspective, you know, personal brand. Yeah. So personal brand, I mean, brand and culture are really big, especially in today's world, because if you're virtual, how are you going to be able to win opportunities, whether it be from your your own personal business or from an investment side without being in a room and making that real strong impact? So when I mentioned earlier about building in public, I learned a lot of that from my days in Wall Street paper. So I was an investment banker some odd years ago in my cubicle. I was on Instagram. This was right when Instagram was starting to take off. And I had always been a person who really loved fashion, loved content, all these things. And one day I'm on Instagram and I'm scrolling and I was like, you know what? I would love to tell the story about what my life's about. And I'm sure a lot of other people on Instagram always wanted to do that. And so I took it a little bit serious. I started to reach out to brands that I liked to, to see if they could give me free stuff. Um, I ended up having to buy a lot of it myself. <laughs> so uh, rags to riches story, if you will, of just like really never getting any reception back from the folks that I reached out to. But over the next nine to 12 months of my first year of doing content creation, I put it on myself to shoot photography every Saturday and every Sunday and just to build muscle memory. And then after I built that muscle memory, I started to build my own kind of like sales process to reach out to brands, to start to get some of that free stuff to uh, promote. Then after I started promoting, I would start pitching some of the stuff I promoted to brands to pay me. So if Bank of America worked with me, I might pitch it to Chase to pay me. (laughs) So then I started this flywheel (laughs) of halo effect. And I just realized, uh, all right, cool. If you can actually have a FOMO type of moment and you can leverage previous work to get new work and to actually increase your earning power, then that's how you create a flywheel for your company. And so that was like the mental state of like, all right, cool. Once I get this project, I'm going to pitch it to another company or another competitor to get a higher price. And then after that, I got to a place where people started to reach out to me because I was building this brand. 
uh, for example, so GQ wants to work with me, then Esquire wondered why, why they're not working with me. Genesis, the car company wants to work with me. Cadillac's wondering why they don't work with me. And so being able to leverage people against each other in a positive way mm -hmm. uh, from a professional standpoint was really the best way for me to kind of get Wall Street paper off the, off the ground. Now, how do we think about that from a Harlem Capital perspective? We wanted to tap into having a, a, a very big, audacious goal and then going after that in public. So from Wall Street paper, it was more of creating content through an entrepreneur and in culture lens and like having people be a part of that through Harlem Capitalists, like, hey, how do we empower this super disenfranchised community to actually participate in the biggest opportunity for wealth creation of our lifetime? And everyone loved that. Everyone wanted to jump on it. It was it was super amazing. And so what we did after that, we said, okay, cool. We're the only investors who are focused on this. We have to start creating thought leadership so that we can get other people involved. So we did research, we found over 200 people who were Black or Latinx who raised $1 million. And then that ended up being the largest research report of diverse people raising over $1 million. So that started a flywheel of Wall Street Journal and Forbes and Crunchbase and all these people reaching out to us and then starting to cite us <laughs> as research mm, yeah. in, their, in, in a lot of their articles. And then that led to people wanting to reach out to us for investment. And then that started this whole initial flywheel over and over again of continuing to just show that we're finding opportunities that meet our thesis and that more people should be doing what we're doing. And then that created this really interesting kind of um, FOMO factor where folks were like, okay, we see what Holland Capital is doing. They're finding great people. Why can't we do that at our firm? And then eventually you have COVID and then you also have all the racial injustice happens. And it just happened to be that we were at the right time at the right place. Now everyone is really focused on racial equity. We just happen to be at the forefront of the entire movement right now. So it's, it's, it's a super exciting time. That's humble though, at the right time in the right place, but incredibly prepared. You know, what, what? Yeah. Five years ago, <laughs> we, we were, we looked, we did not look like, we didn't look as smart as we do right now. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what strikes me about that, what, what really resonates is, how much of the principles of how you kind of went about building your personal brand relates kind of perfectly into the the world of of company building and and kind of viewing yourself as a startup and the way you described that uh, how the the market essentially starts pulling the product out of what you're doing it's it's very much like you've achieved product market fit for yourself yeah I guess it's product led growth <laughs> product led and growth. And you see this in a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays. There's, there's folks like Elon Musk who are outliers, right? Where the the value of Tesla is not necessarily focused on the metrics and the financials. It's more on the person at the at the helm of the company. But there are new startups that are being valued at the same same thing. One of the companies that we recently saw was Fast, which is one click to checkout, which is uh, essentially Amazon buy now button, but for all companies or for all websites and they raised their seed around it and within 12 months they had raised another round at one billion dollar valuation and a lot of that was from both of those founders kind of building in public on twitter and actually one of those founders is from ohio uh, allison one of the founders so it's 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 definitely doable from the founder angle in the tech space as well yeah from the the wall street paper 
perspective, you know, just I, I kind of want to do a, a brief tangent on, on fashion mm-hmm. and, and no just get your high level perspective. Cause you know, growing up, my, uh, my grandmother always said, you know, dress for the role that you want, which was kind of like drilled into me and growing up and internalized to mean that like, out of the way that you carry yourself and present yourself is actually important and how other people perceive you. And so fashion and presentation and the details mm-hmm. are important and kind of a reflection of, of what is to some degree going on inside of you. And so I've never really like gotten into fashion, but it's always been <laughs> something that I think about as important. And as you kind of build in public, I guess, how, how do you think about it? Is it truly at this point still, um, you know, with more than 200,000 followers, just a, an expression of yourself? Or, or how are you thinking <laughs> about Wall Street Paper at this point? Well, first and foremost, I mean, perception is reality. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that the way you're perceived is just other people's re- reality to them. So even though you might be a nice person or you might be this, that or another, if you're not perceived that way, it's unfortunate that <laughs> that's what just re- reality is. And look good, do good. That was one of my um, one of my mantras way back mm. then. You got to you got to look good to feel good, to perform good. Right. And to execute at a high level from a Wall Street paper perspective. I mean, the way I want to use my platform now, I'm saying no, almost 95 percent of the time now. And mm-hmm. I'm being very kind of um, selective and specific about the people that I work with. And my platform now is just really to champion what people of color and women are doing or champion business and culture and and try to educate and let people inside on what they can do, what services they can use, what products they can use, how can they scale themselves and then eventually hire people and scale their own business. So that's kind of the future for me from a, a Wall Street paper perspective and just trying to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm sharing positivity. We need as much positivity and wellness as we can get going, especially in the 2020s. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's starting off tough. This decade is starting off tough, so I'm just trying to put a lot of positivity into the space. Well, that, your positivity is appreciated for sure. As you kind of reflect on the last five, ten, ten years now, building Wall Street Paper, building Harlem Capital, what are the biggest learnings that that you have taken away from that experience? Number one, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. So this is an amazing Jim Rohn quote. Jim Rohn was the mentor to Tony Robbins. And he always just talked about you have to work harder on yourself than you do in your job, because if you work really hard on your job, you could get fired the next day. Right. Like that doesn't increase anything for you. But if you do work hard on yourself, you become a better person, a better listener, a better public speaker, a better friend, a better brother, a better et cetera, et cetera. You could do that in those small things and you can do great in the big things, in the the personal and the professional side of things. So that's that's number one. You have to really be focused on that personal and self-development journey. Number two, find your tribe. If you can't find your tribe and have people who have different mindsets than you, people who kind of sharpen you, people who kind of can uh, cover the gaps that you may have, then I think it's going to be really tough. You can go fast alone, but you can go much farther together. And I think that's something that I really learned with Harlem Capital or even the team that I built with Wall Street Paper really surrounding yourself with super strong, positive people who have the same type of level of excellence that you may hold yourself to and push each other to the next level. Um, If you can do those two things, I think you won't really ever have to worry about earning power and you can start to 
really enjoy self-fulfillment because you'll be working on things that you want to work on, spending your time how you want to spend it and spending it with whoever you want to spend it with. So those are kind of the things, nothing that has has to do with uh, (laughs) investing or content creation. It's more about who are you as an individual. Yeah, I think those, those resonate a lot. As you made your way back to Cleveland, what has surprised you most about being back here in, in Cleveland? So I grew up in Bedford and Twinsburg, uh, spent my like high school years in Twinsburg. So I didn't have a, have that much of a chance to spend that much time downtown or on the West side. So I am presently surprised that and happy that there is a Trader Joe's pretty close to me now that I live downtown. <laughs> Uh, Trader Joe's has, has been a, a, a welcoming addition to my life. I think Edgewater Park, I live in a midtown area. It is less than 10 minutes away from me. I never thought that I would move to Cleveland and be 10 minutes away from a beach. So that's been very exciting. And another thing that I was thinking about is the kind of small business coalition of these young folks who are super excited about starting big goods companies small real estate firms, dog daycare companies, all these small mom and shop folks who are really living and thriving and are really trying to bring something different to the ecosystem. That has been warming my heart and and very welcoming. And then I I guess lastly, to your point earlier, the excitement. People are excited to have me home. I appreciate it. I appreciate the folks who bring the excitement. So I have a, a ton of energy around Cleveland and what it can be in the future. I'm super excited about the vaccine and other things being (laughs) done so that we can do things safely in person and hopefully when it's warm. And I'm just really looking forward to tasting more food and checking out more nature and just different initiatives and experiences in Cleveland. Yeah, all things that are worth <laughs> worth exploring and experiencing mm-hmm. for sure. The the vibrancy and, and the excitement is, is very real. Yeah. And, and one, you know, quick note, funny enough, like my girlfriend's friend told her that you can go to Edgewater Park and walk on Lake Erie. So we went out there. We tried to be as safe as possible. And we were just walking on Lake Erie with a bunch of other people. Can't do that in New York. Uh, <laughs> so appreciate you, Cleveland. Yeah, the, the nature in the area is pretty extraordinary. Well, awesome. I, you know, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. I've learned a ton uh, just from the past you know, 40 minutes or so here. So I really appreciate it. It, it. If people have anything that they would like to follow up with, with you about, um, whether it be Harlem Capital or Wall Street Paper, or just excited about Cleveland, <laughs> where's the, the best place for them to reach you, Brandon? Yeah, it's Brandon at Harlem.capital. There is no .com. It's just Harlem.capital, the website, and Brandon at Harlem.capital. Or feel free to give Give me a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Wall Street Paper. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high-quality guests to the show. Taken Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. 
At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.